Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Bunmy Chronicles podcast. This is Randy Kim, your host and producer of this podcast. In continuation of the season three theme, Where Do We Stand? Indiana State Representative Chris Chung joined me as my guest for this episode. In 2018, he became the first Korean American and also the youngest at 25 years old elected into office in Indiana's history by beating the district's longtime incumbent by only 82 votes in one of the state's traditionally held GOP districts. This year, he is running in what is expected to be a very competitive re-election race. Representative Chung talks about the challenges of running in 2018 as someone new to politics and as an Asian American running in a district that is 90% white and GOP leaning. He discusses what he's learned since taking office and working in a state where, as a Democrat, the GOP holds the majority control. We talk about the issues affecting his constituents in the wake of COVID-19, his own approach to navigating his district's politics, as well as his position within the Democratic Party, and his upcoming re-election campaign. Thank you for joining me on this episode, and don't forget to register to vote in this upcoming election. Also, special thanks to my sponsor, Lawrence and Argyle, a Vietnam-American-owned merchandise line representing immigrant empowerment. Get yourself a pin, hoodie, or a t-shirt and show off your immigrant pride. Visit them at www.lawrenceandargyle.com or on Instagram at lawrenceandargyle or on their Facebook page. Hi, everyone. This is uh, Randy. So today I am joined here with Representative Chris Chung. And uh, to begin, before I uh, bring him in, so I want to give you a quick introduction of who he is. So in 2018, at the age of 25, Indiana State Representative Chris Chung of Dyer, Indiana, became the youngest and the first Korean American elected official in Indiana. He represents Indiana House District 15, Chung is the ranking minority member of the local government committee. He is also a member of the following Indiana House committees, which includes financial institutions, roads and transportation, and veteran affairs and public safety. Chung was born in Maryville, Indiana, and graduated from a Monster High School. And after working as a financial analyst for Pangea Real Estate in Chicago, Chung started his own real estate company, Co-Holdings LLC in Hammond. Chung's volunteer work has included service with Habitat for Humanity Restore, as well as the Welcome Network. So with that said, I want to say thank you so much for being on my show, Chris. And I am really honored to have you on today. And I know that uh, you took time out of your very busy re-election campaign. So uh, tell me, how are you uh, doing so far in this uh, wild pandemic season that we're in? I'm doing well, Randy. Thank you so much for the invitation to be on your podcast and to share our message that's so important to Asian Americans, not only in the Midwest where we are, but also across the country and to expand that dialogue. And yeah, of course, the pandemic has rocked the economy locally and nationally and has upended families and has killed a number of my constituents uh, who I know and, and deeply care for. So it's been it's been something that we never anticipated in January, if you had told me that this is where we're going to be come uh, August, September, 
I would have been devastated and shocked that we would have lost 180,000 Americans and counting. So what we're trying to do as an elected official, as a legislator in the state of Indiana, we're trying to focus on making sure that next year's budget for the state is focused on people and not just the multinational corporations who are going to come out okay in this pandemic, quite frankly. I mean, you can just look at the stock market and see how those guys are doing, but how is the average person on the street doing? That's going to be the question, and that's why I'm so excited to run for re-election. Yeah, thank you so much for sharing that. And also, I was wondering if you can go into uh, the the struggles that your constituents have been facing since COVID-19. And I wonder if you're able to share a little bit more about what District 15 represents and uh, what can you describe about your uh, constituents? Yeah, so House District 15 in Indiana is located in Lake County, Indiana. We're right on the border with uh, South Cook County, Sauk Village area. And I represent Dyer, Cherville, St. John, and Griffith. Um, the district is a mix of suburban, exurban, and a little bit rural. A few precincts are definitely farmland territory. Um, and it is uh, overwhelmingly Caucasian, I think more than 90% at the last count. Uh, not very many Asian folks like myself. I think I know most of them, and actually most of them are Trump supporters themselves. Uh, and then the district politically did vote for President Trump by around 10 percentage points of a margin in 2016. And I'm a Democrat myself, and I flipped a state house district that was Republican uh, since it was redistricted after the 2010 census. Uh, and I won by 82 votes out of around 25,000 cast. So it's a pretty on the knife's edge district, definitely leaning moderate to conservative and trying to, uh, tip, uh, trying to make that balance work and trying to get that message across these very, very different uh, political ideologies nowadays is something that's been a huge challenge. And on the face of the pandemic, it's made, it's made the work even more difficult, as you can imagine. We've had people lose their jobs, lose their businesses, have to file for unemployment. I get so many emails every day stating that a constituent is having a lot of difficulty with our Department of Workforce Development and getting their unemployment payments processed in time. These are people who, have, who are white collar professionals as well as blue collar folks, folks who have told me time and time again, I've never had to file for unemployment in my life. And I say, you don't have to apologize to me about it. This, I, this, is, this is an unprecedented economic calamity that we are trying to manage our way through. And there's no reason for you to feel sorry about having to uh, get, get a little bit of assistance to get back on your feet and feed your own families. So it's been difficult because the Department of Workforce Development, people have had complaints about the slow, um, slow process of getting those claims back to them. We've, for our part, tried to lean on our contacts internally um, through the department and through our liaison to get those people bumped up to the queue and bumped up so that they can get those payments back to their families. And people have been very grateful for that. I wish that it weren't like that and where we weren't kind of dishing out these uh, preferential treatment for people who contact my office. But the fact is that we really need to look forward at making an unemployment claims filing system that is streamlined, that is not bureaucratic, that is still uh, getting all the facts from people and still ironclad, but there's a way to do it without so much bureaucracy layered on top of it that ends up being a negative harm instead of beneficial to people. And what can you also say about your relationship with 
Indiana House members and also with the Indiana Senate, because it is uh, a predominantly red state. Uh, it's been voting Republican for generations, with the exception of that 2008 presidential election of Obama. But uh, I wonder about this, um, about how this has affected people who have voted for Trump in your district. And also, uh, even with your own supporters, uh, when they see the responses not being ideal or uh, obviously very dire for uh, your constituents, what has been the reaction towards uh, the, your constituents uh, on the Indiana politicians who are running the state? Yeah, so for us in the House, um, it is 67% Republican, 67 out of 100 House members are Republican. So there's a two thirds supermajority there. And then also in the Senate, it's 80% Republican. So there's an even greater supermajority there. Uh, the Democratic Party has no statewide elected officials in Indiana. We lost our US Senator Joe Donnelly in 2018 um, in, in a very contested election that was there was national money at play. I think the total price tag from both sides ended up being something like over $100 million, which just blows my mind that people are spending that kind of money on, uh, on two people, on two candidates running for office. But uh, by and large, what we've been trying to do and what I think my constituents appreciate is that I don't try to go in there guns blazing and saying that, you know, it's you're, you're either with me or against me or you're the, you're the devil or you're an angel, it's black or white, because it never is in politics, quite honestly. There's always, it's varying shades of gray. There are a, a lot of areas where uh, good people do bad things and bad people do good things and it, it gets all kind of mixed up. So what I try to focus on instead of the tit for tat is just to focus on the district, make sure that when we can make progress that we get it done, instead of promising my constituents, yeah, we're gonna take 20 steps forward and then get zero steps forward. I say, if we can get one or two steps forward and actually accomplish something meaningful, then I'm, I'm gonna be prepared to negotiate for that kind of change. I'm okay with it being incremental. I'm, you know, I think it's, I think people are sick and tired of the politicians who are promising, making these wild campaign promises that they know they even can't keep, but they do that in order to win votes in the election. And then ultimately when it comes down to the business of governing, nothing gets accomplished. So that kind of is something that I focused on as previously an apolitical, member of society and then all of a sudden jumping into the world of politics that was something that always kind of grinded on me a bit and and I didn't want to be like that if I if I win so now that I did I think that people have been responding to that message of working together some bipartisanship but not compromising on my political beliefs but just trying to make progress uh, people have been pretty positively receptive to that and I know uh, reading in the Indie Star, you talk about your parents who came to the U.S. as Korean immigrants and that they were former Republicans, which is a, actually a very familiar narrative for many older Asian parents. Uh, how did your politics and your family's politics change and what did you see in the Democratic Party that led you and your family away from the GOP? Yeah, no, that's a really fascinating journey for a lot of Asian Americans who have shifted that way. Like I think in the 80s, it was it was an overwhelming percentage of uh, Koreans and Asian Americans were uh, strong Republicans and were, were predominantly voting that way. 
for my parents, it, it's, there's kind of a split actually. Like my dad is still um, a Trump supporter and will be voting mm. for President Trump again, but my mom will absolutely not be, although she's not really a fan of Biden either, but she did vote for Hillary in 2016 because she couldn't stand Trump, quite honestly. So there's a gender that, divide. <laughs> I wonder right, how that yeah. works in your own family there too. And yeah, what yeah, was the reason yeah, why, yeah. why is it that your dad, this is a conversation that always intrigues me because, you know, I, I'm Vietnamese and Cambodian and uh, I have family members who are Trump supporters and older Vietnamese folks tend to lean towards uh, Trump. But I want to know about your dad's uh, politics in this. Yeah, so from what I interpret, and while I, I know I can't directly speak for what he believes in, but I would guess that both, so both my parents were strong Bush supporters in those years and were fans of his policies. Uh, a lot of it comes down to fiscal issues when I, what, at least what I see when it comes to Asian families is they're looking for the party that's gonna reduce their taxes as much as possible. And if, you know, if you're upper middle class, like a lot of Asian Americans are, uh, and you're a professional class uh, and you're not really struggling and you're able to get by without government assistance in any way, that's gonna be the issue that you're kind of the only thing you care about when it comes to government. And it's the easiest thing to focus on because it is so numbers based. So that said, my mom felt completely alienated by Trump when he was saying all these crazy things on TV. Like I remember one day, it was so funny. And in, in I think August of 2016, she came home one day and she just looked at me and she was just like, Chris, did you know this? And I was like, wait, did I know what? And she's like, did you know? Trump is a liar. <laughs> and I'm just like, yeah, 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 no, mom, I know, like, they're, ch they're fact checking him, like, it's been happening for from the beginning, like the whole birther thing with Obama being born in Kenya, and how that was a huge lie, uh, that he ended up exploiting for political purposes. And then we can go down and down the list of the 10s of 1000s of other lies that he's told. So it was like a really slow kind of realization for her. And then that really turned her off because he says all this crazy stuff on TV. Uh, and, that, and that goes along gender lines as well. I think that my dad uh, on, the, on the flip side kind of digs in when he says stuff like that and says, oh, he's just being a uh, non-conventional politician. He's just being someone who's speaking his mind. And, and I think there's a portion of the knee jerk stuff that Trump says, even when it's not true, is something that there's a, a, a good amount of people in, in America who will have that knee-jerk reaction and appeal to their worst angels when they, when they hear what he's saying and they say, this guy is speaking to me because that's something I would say if I were being frank, if I didn't have to worry about the media, if I didn't have to worry about part partisanship or po political games, and that's something I would just say because it's just what's on my mind. And that in and of itself has an extreme gravitational pull when it comes to some of these voters is what I'm finding more and more. Like there, he was, Trump was absolutely right when he said, I could go and shoot somebody on Fifth Avenue and I, and I wouldn't lose any supporters. I, I'm sure he would gain some and then there would also be some saying it's a liberal hoax that he killed somebody on Fifth Avenue. Like there, it's just a, a level of, uh, commitment and fanboyism that I don't think any politician has or will ever experience in their lifetime. I mean, the enthusiasm among his base is off the charts and the loyalty that his own supporters have shown is off the charts. And, but, but at the same time, like I'm, it's my belief that that's not good for society. I mean, the, the lies that he's telling, the things that he's saying to denigrate a lot of subsects of society, the um, 
way he inflames tensions. I don't believe in any of that as a politician. So I don't, I don't see him representing uh, my beliefs there. And I do not support him in that respect. And I always qualify it because in our area of Northwest Indiana, steel, the steel tariffs that President Trump was pushing for was actually something our congressman had been pushing for for many years. And it was good for our domestic steel industry uh, for the most part. And, and helping foster those jobs that are local to Northwest Indiana folks. So it's not like I oppose every single thing just because it's him. I oppose by an, when in a holistic view, I oppose a lot of the, his rhetoric and what he says because it's lies. Yeah, and, and also uh, when you ran for in 2018, uh, what was the calling for you to say, yes, you know what, I'm going to run for political office despite the fact that you had not been an intern or had worked in uh, campaigns before, you had not worked in the public sector, you had most of your experience um, uh, in your young life as a person who's been in real estate finances. And so what actually uh, got you to, what got you to that area of politics, especially for someone who is very young? And I don't mean to sound like I'm belittling it because I do think it's very intriguing that when we're looking at young people like AOC, you're looking at a lot of young politicians who have been activists, who have you know, spent uh, time advocating for immigrant communities. So I would like to know what was your, uh, what was the inspiration behind your 2018 campaign run and did being both Korean and being a young person under, I think you were under the age of 25 at the time that you announced, I believe, right? And so did these factors really intimidate you? And like, I don't know if I could actually uh, be taken seriously in this district that had been voting for a Republican incumbent for uh, a number of years. No, absolutely. I mean, that, that hits the nail right on the head. For me, I got my degree in industrial engineering from college. I moved back from New York City to Northwest Indiana in 2016. I was never politically involved. I was working in, in the private sector and having a pretty comfortable private life, which I uh, enjoyed. And then all of a sudden, when uh, shit hit the fan when it came in 2016, I started getting more involved in politics and reading about uh, what it meant politically, why it was important to vote, who representatives were, what the three branches of government did do at the state level and the federal level and the local level and just educating myself and say, and then I got really interested. So I got the political bug, I guess, was, was the main impetus. And I decided I'm gonna try and work on somebody's campaign to change who represents me. So I went down the list of who represents me in Congress, in, at the state level, in the legislature, and I found my representative, looked into his voting record, found a lot of things that were horrible. Just, I mean, he voted in recent memory, voted to allow uh, employers to fire people for looking or being gay in the workplace without any legal repercussions. So things like that, I was just like, this is completely out of step with my beliefs. A lot of anti-union stuff, a lot of anti-labor, anti-working class stuff, uh, a lot of stuff that is just fringe abortion ideas like, um, uh, uh, trying to peddle an abortion reversal pill that had no scientific backing ended up being overturned in federal court, but he was uh, pushing that bill pretty hard and voted for it. I mean, this kind of stuff, I was just like, oh my gosh, we need to get this guy out of there. He's, he's a nut job. 
So I went and looked for the candidates who would work on, uh, uh, who would be the, the, the candidate to run against him. And then I was asking them if they were to run again, if, I, if they would let me help on their campaign, because I just wanted to get my feet wet there. Everybody I talked to said, no way, it's a suicide mission. We can't beat him. We tried before. He's too ironclad. He's too well-liked well-known and popular. If we can't do it, you sure as hell can't do it because your name ID is zero and you're, uh, you know, you're, you look like you're a 15 year old Asian kid in this district that has maybe a hundred Asian people total. So you're just totally the wrong fit, but best of luck if you try to do it. And I decided, you know what, I'm in my twenties. It sounds fun. I like the political strategy aspect. Um, let's just try it. Let's just see, let's just go for it. And it's, not like I'm gonna be losing a ton of time or and I, I don't think I would have regrets if I were to run and lose. And ultimately I ended up loving the political strategy, the political communications aspect of it. And not only that, but going door to door in 2018, I said was a better education than any of my years in college, quite honestly. I learned more about sociology, about hopes, dreams, and fears of people, about psychology of people, about current events and what people cared about than anything I could have gotten learning just reading from a textbook or uh, listening to a professor at a university. So it was an extremely illuminating experience and I really loved it. So I think having that genuine joy and genuine passion for it was something that really propelled me to eke out that really narrow victory and come from behind. And also we were lucky because my opponent had completely written me off, hadn't spent a dollar in campaign funds, hadn't done any campaigning, whereas in previous years he had always gone door to door, he's always out there in the community. And this year he just said, it's some Asian kid who's running. Um, he literally told that to the county party chairman. And then mm. after we won, we we're just like, I guess that was the best we could do with that little Asian kid. So, so yeah, I would encourage other young Asian folks to go out there and run for school board, run for town council, run for the legislature, or get involved in a campaign because our voices are needed at the table more than ever. And, and talking about the factors that led to your election, um, what, uh, what do you think was the, uh, were the critical factors for people who had voted for the incumbents and who had been voting for Trump that all of a sudden like, oh, okay, let me take a chance on this young 25-year-old Korean-American person here? And, and what was the experience like communicating with a predominantly white district that probably doesn't see very many Asian folks because there's only like a hundred. I mean, looking at the, uh, the, cent the, the uh, 2010 census map, it's 90% white. And you're going into an area where no one knows who you are. Um, you do not look like the rest of your constituents. And yeah, I like to know what that must be like to engage in these conversations with older white uh, constituents who have been voting for Republicans for many years. Yeah, I mean, it comes down to, I think, trust in a lot of ways. And then a lot of people's motivations I found for voting do not fall along the lines that the political consultant class believes they do. A lot of people have very different ideas of how they're voting, very personal ideas of how they're voting. And what I mean by when it comes down to trust was that my opponent had been a town councilman in our town for a decade and then a three-term state legislator and, and had this reputation of being a very nice man. And he personally is, like I don't have any issue talking with him or 
saying hello to him or his wife when they're around. I mean, I, we're, you know, we're very cordial with one another. It's just the political ideology and the voting history are completely out of step with one another and could not be more far apart if they tried. Um, so that said, a lot of people, when I went out campaigning, were kind of intrigued for one, like we're, we're like, oh, this is something really different. Like in Lake County, Indiana politics, you get the same faces. It's a revolving door in terms of who's running for what, whose family member is stepping in because they'll, they'll capitalize on the name recognition of having the same last name. There are so many folks who have like many political dynasties in this area. And I think that's not only true for Lake County, but true for most parts of the United States, quite, quite frankly. So here, when they saw someone who's completely detached and also could, I guess, kind of speak well, I mean, sometimes you get these other no-name candidates who come in there and who are completely off their rockers and not coming off really professional or, or polished up. Uh, and once they heard what we had to say, they were like, you know, I agree with what you have a lot to say about. So yeah, I think I can uh, take a risk and vote for you this one time and we'll see how you do. And, you know, they'll still be keeping an eagle eye on my voting record and on uh, on the political ads and what I say in the newspapers and making their decisions this November as well. But those conversations stemmed from an area that they felt they could trust me. For one, I'm one of the only legislators who doesn't take any donations from corporate money, from corporations or corporate PACs. And a lot of, I think, the intersection between the Trump supporters and the uh, the Bernie supporters in the area and why they voted that way for to propel Donald Trump to the presidency was that they were sick and tired of the career politicians who were consistently going to just do corporate lobbyist bidding and they were not putting the people's interests first. And if you listen to right wing media, which I do actually quite a bit and left wing media just to see exactly what everybody's saying and it's an education for me. Um, what you do see is that both of the both of the political parties on the Democratic and Republican sides both see themselves as standing up for the little guy and standing up to some elite. On the Democratic side, we believe we're standing up to billionaires and corporations who have consolidated political power around their financial status. And on the Republican side, they believe they're standing up to political elites who are based and the media elite who are based out of New York and DC and the coasts uh, and have co-opted the, the narrative of, of, uh, of the culture and the, and the mainstream media and entertainment. So it was an interesting um, intersection when I told people I'm not taking those corporate donations because I'm here to listen to you and your votes. I'm not here to listen to the special interest or the lobbying group that's pushing this bill that's ultimately harmful to you. And I got a lot of Trump supporters on my uh, to support me that way. And it was so it, 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 it was endlessly interesting, quite honestly, because I remember the guy who was a Bernie to Trump supporter and I sealed the deal as soon as I told him that because he was so fed up with the Washington style level of politics and the Indianapolis style of politics in the state house, where it's just the big, the big corporate lobby is pushing their own agenda. And they feel that both political parties have totally betrayed them. They feel totally alienated uh, and they wanna vote third party, but there isn't that option. So that's how we won over a lot of those folks. And we're continuing to do that today. And you know, being a state representative, you only have less than two years to prove yourself. And in those two years, you have a plethora of issues, you know, with state budget issues, uh, with teachers in your districts or in the rest of the state of Indiana who are really struggling, the pandemic clearly, and we're in the census year, and obviously with the reelection campaign for Trump. So 
in those two years, what can you say that you have accomplished and what has been the response been from constituents uh, with your supporters and non-supporters uh, so far and how they have assessed your work in, in that period of time, which is very short, but also very essential and critical. Yeah, so, so something I was particularly proud of was that on the I serve on the Financial Institutions Committee and what we deal with a lot of year after year is the short-term predatory lender industry, the payday loan guys. Um, they try to come in and get more favorable legislation for themselves to extend these high interest rate products to a lot of Hoosiers. And we, we were able to kill that bill ultimately in a really bipartisan fashion by teaming up not only with veterans who hated the legislation because they saw that the payday loan industry was targeting veterans specifically for their marketing purposes. And also they teamed up with the uh, religious community who believe that, that high interest rates are usury. So you had like the religious folks, I mean, interfaith rabbis and pastors and uh, all denominations coming together with veterans and then coming together with Democrats to, in a really uh, kind of strange bedfellows way, defeat this legislation that ultimately would have cost Hoosiers hundreds of millions of dollars in excess interest payments. So stopping that legislation was something that was really cool. Uh, and then a lot of what our work is in this in the minority party is stopping bad legislation or making bills that we don't agree with a little less bad. And that's what we did with the education front in our district, we talked to our superintendent uh, who was initially getting only a, a little bit of extra funding uh, for his budget in for our local schools. And then through, through negotiations over and over and through uh, consistently applied political pressure, we were able to get more funding that uh, stabilized the district and was able to make our make us a little more whole in the end. So um, I would say that there it a lot. That's kind of a lot of the work that you do in the minority. You can't just push your grand agenda and uh, get get things through. Especially as a freshman member in a swing district, it's very difficult to push legislation forward. But people have been really receptive to those bills, and not only that, not only my uh, legislative record with the hundreds of other smaller bills that we've done, but equally important, but also the values that we stand for, the values that I stand for as a legislator. Um, you know, I take, I, I'm kind of a unique blend of stuff because I do believe in term limits. I'm really strongly in favor of term limits and I'm going to term limit myself as soon as uh, my uh, eight years in the state house is up and I won't seek any more uh, re-elections at that time. But also I believe in the strong uh, uh, reform when it comes to campaign finance and making sure that uh, corporations have less power and people have more power when it comes to advocating for legislation. Um, the work that we do on the Veterans and Public Safety Committee is very important. Uh, we extended some healthcare programs to eliminate co-pays for them. Uh, we also did some more symbolic things like a, a new license plate and a new flag for them. But next year, I'm, I'm already uh, drafting legislation right now and working on it in the off session to try to extend more favorable lending legislation to them to get them to get more favorable uh, rates for these low interest loans and also to uh, make put some real dollars towards putting their health care front and center because as much as I see that um, certain members in the legislature like to 
uh, uh, beat their chests over the fact that they support veterans. They're not putting the money where it should be. I mean, there have been consistent cuts to the Indiana Veterans Home for indigent veterans in West Lafayette that I think is amoral, but I guess we don't hear about that part. We only hear about the chest thumping part uh, and the new flag that they're, that they're putting a little bit of money towards uh, doing. So I want to put some serious money in the next session towards mm -hmm. helping veterans and making sure that those outcomes are good. And also uh, with the Democratic Party, there are different factions from within where you have progressives like AOC, Bernie Sanders, then you have left wing to moderate Democrats, uh, centrist folks, and then you got the remaining conservative Democrats like Senator Joe Manchin. So where do you stand as a Democrat state legislator? I know that it sounds a little redundant from what you were just uh, talking about, but uh, I asked this question because I wonder, especially as a freshman uh, Democrat legislator in a swing district in a predominantly Republican state, uh, do you find yourself having to hold back your own progressive ideals because it does not fit with the rest of your constituents' um, ideals? And where do you draw the line where um, you have your own moral compass, but then you also have folks in your constituents that don't necessarily share uh, those values that you want them to have? Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, for me, the answer is pretty simple. I don't hold back any of my ideals. I believe what I believe. I look at the facts and data and come to what I believe are educated conclusions. Uh, however, what the what we run up against is the vote count. I say, you know what, it would be great to do this great progressive program, but bring me the votes first and then we'll talk about it. Because right now it makes no zero sense to talk about doing a statewide um, single payer healthcare plan or a, even a public option because there are not even the votes to get us to a place where we can regulate prescription drug prices. So that's kind of the frustration that I have a little bit. Number one, I don't, I don't label myself as anything like I have, I think like a lot of Americans that I've talked to, I have ideas that fall on the right, on the left, on the center, on the moderate side, some that I still have no idea where I fall yet based on the public policy and the research that I haven't done yet. So I just, I, I mean, if anything, I'm kind of more an independent in that aspect. But for instance, I think that a single payer healthcare system works out great for those countries and I do support it. I think it would make sense to try and move towards that model, but the fact is that we don't have the votes in the legislature to accomplish that. So why would I be out there, you know, thumping my chest over, again, it goes back to the, what I had said earlier that that promise of taking 20 steps forward and actually taking zero is not something I want versus taking an actual one or two steps forward incrementally. So we've narrowed our focus on our campaign side and on my legislative office side to prescription drug prices and reforming those first uh, before we move to these um, bigger ways that we can reform American healthcare and make it work for people. And, you know, I, I try to educate people as well. I try to show them that the current system is it's costing way too much money. It's insane for us to defend this. The only thing that uh, the only people who are really benefiting from the medical industrial complex are the giant healthcare systems, are the giant insurance executives, are the people making a ton of money off the fact that you just got a $150,000 bill after you had a heart attack and it wasn't even your fault. Like that stuff that is just completely bananas to me and completely uh, outrageous. And I'm sure, you know, my opponent will use it in some attack ad to say that, you know, socialized medicine and whatever and, and that kind of outrageous stuff. And he can go ahead and do that, but I know exactly what I stand for. I know what the data says and I know what I'm going to be working for. 
uh, this next session. So I get a little I get a little annoyed when it become when we get wrapped up in the um, the uh, liberal the, I guess the liberalism and the progressivism that stems from these it, uh, inner city areas that are super 99% democratic and yeah you have the latitude to push the envelope more when you live in Chicago or you live in Indianapolis to say those things and uh, and still have a, a big enough plurality of people supporting you but here in the suburbs and the exurbs and the rural areas that I represent, you know, you have not done the ground, you have not laid the groundwork to make sure that this is an idea that people understand. And I'm trying to in my own way, but don't expect us to just fall in line behind you because, you know, you want to bully or pressure people into um, voting a certain way. Like you, we have to lay the groundwork and this is a multi-year effort. And you know, I, I just get a little frustrated over some of that rhetoric and some of that lack of understanding from those folks. And uh, the people who are flipping swing districts are not getting enough credit. And uh, the I think the mainstream press are really focusing on the most left-wing stuff that they can find uh, in order to drive kind of a divisive narrative because divisive narratives sell more papers than, than bipartisanship and cooperation. So I, yeah, I don't mean to go on my little rant right there, but it's something that I know what I stand for. I know what I believe in, but I also know how to count votes. Yeah, and, and also uh, I know with this election, this re-election campaign presents many challenges right now, um, but also with the COVID-19 crisis, have you as an Asian American experienced anti-Asian racism? And do you feel that has also been um, a concerning factor uh, in your district, especially when you hear this anti-Asian racism that's been widespread on a national level. I just want to get your take on it and what have has your voice been and, and how do you feel that your constituents have been towards you uh, during the uh, pandemic wave? Yeah, I personally, I personally have not experienced any anti-Asian sentiment after COVID-19. Um, I'm sure people are saying it behind my back and whatever, but I don't, I don't really care. And number two, we don't have a lot of Asian people in this district, so I haven't heard of any constituents of mine being targeted yet. Um, I'm keeping an ear to the ground, and when people tell me, I'd, I'd love to find out. But also, I have heard on a wider scale, like, like you said, nationally, that there have been a lot of hate incidents where there, you know, it doesn't help when the president is saying Kung flu or Wuhan virus or China, China virus or things like that. I mean, we, we all know that he's clearly trying to uh, cast a bogeyman and somebody that he can draw attention to for his own reelection purposes. That's like what uh, that's like number 101 in the playbook, you know, for running for reelection. And it's and it's kind of juvenile, in my opinion. But for me, um, it's it hasn't been an issue yet. I'm going to keep an ear to the ground, and I'm going to make sure that when people say stuff like that, that they try to keep a little bit more of an uh, open mind, I guess. But also on the flip side, I don't jump down people's throats if they say stuff that is bigoted. Like like when I ran in 2018, unrelated to the coronavirus, people did say stuff that I guess was bigoted. And um, when they weren't when they weren't saying it out from a place of malice, and they were just saying it out from a place of ignorance, I was just trying to educate them and just say like oh you know I would appreciate if you didn't call us orientals or things like that like that you know I'm Asian I'm Korean we appreciate that uh, instead and I'm not trying to like be the the police when it comes to wording but I'm also just trying to educate people as we move forward and and then for the people who do say racist things out of malice and I just kind of move on like it's you you can't really reason with those folks and they're going to be set in their ways and 
uh, I just say have a nice day and and move on to the next person because quite frankly we sh we can't tolerate that behavior and we can't but we also can't expect to change that behavior. It's going to take more young elected officials, more Asian elected officials, actually getting into these positions of power, doing the job of representing and doing the grinding work to be in their communities to make people less less feel less othered by us if they see another face like mine doing work on the school board handing out being a volunteer at the community center doing more work in the community then they're not going to be likely to say those things and that's the best antidote you have to those situations and also continuing on with uh, the COVID-19 crisis, we've also experienced an unprecedented level of uh, civil unrest that's been going on since the George Floyd and Breonna Taylor murders. And and I wonder about, and I know this could be a very tricky topic to talk about, especially in your district, but uh, uh, what has been the reaction of the constituents and how are you working with the police department uh, when it comes to the topic of police brutality against black and brown folks and and also with ICE and uh, that have been raiding a lot of immigrant communities especially like in states like Indiana which has uh, pockets of minorities whether they're Asian Latinx and so forth so how do you navigate these very difficult conversations with uh, institutions that have long been uh, carried a lot of white supremacist uh, views and policies. So it's so I for one I haven't had any conversations with ICE uh, specifically. I mean I I I just haven't had the time I guess. And also it's at it's really controlled at the federal level. So I'd love to sit down with them at some point. And I did actually visit the border with a different group to talk about some of the immigration uh, dysfunction and the fact that Congress needs to pass a real immigration reform package to make sure that citizens can come here, but also can do it legally like my parents did. I don't think that's something out of the blue to say. Um, at this, And then also the second part of your question about talking with local police departments, I sat down with the Indiana State Police, I think uh, one or two weeks ago, to talk about some of the issues that are going on with um, the oversight and the things that we can do moving forward to make sure that we are having a district that is representative of people and not and not being biased towards people based on their race or ethnicity. So from what I hear, it's just as in a lot of other suburban places in America, the district, my district is very divided over this issue. There is a very sharp polarization in terms of Black Lives Matter and then the fraternal order of police being on the other side and law enforcement being on the other side of that. And for me, I was endorsed by the FOP in 2018. I was pretty grateful for that endorsement. I don't, I didn't consider them white supremacists or corrupt. I thought they were, you know, my interactions with police have been pretty positive and I, I don't, I guess don't fit the mold as a minority in a lot, in, in some ways I do, I do consider myself privileged in a lot of ways and having opportunities that uh, other minorities don't have. But at the same time, I do know that there are issues with uh, certain people and being targeted and, and that being an acute problem. And especially in instances where they flare up like this in Minneapolis or in Kenosha now, now which is happening nowadays, um, that is something that is we should not tolerate as a society when somebody is brutalized and just for the color of their skin. Um, and, and we've got to have police reform around that. I also talked with our county sheriff who's implemented a number of important reforms regarding driving more dollars towards mental health and social workers, especially when it comes to drug rehabilitation. Um, the 
the police officers are not trained to like healthcare professionals in order to uh, get those people not addicted to drugs anymore and therefore not committing crimes related to drug addiction anymore. So there's a common sense discussion here. There's a common sense area that is getting so lost in the mainstream discussion, whether it's on social media or whether it's in a lot of the national press that people I think do agree on and they're getting frustrated that they're not feeling listened to. So what I'm telling them is look, I'm, I'm not a defund, you're not, you'll never find me saying defund the police, quite frankly, but also I'm not gonna sweep this issue under the rug and we're gonna have hard discussions moving forward about what we can do to make sure that police are held more accountable and that we can have better funding for their training so that things like this don't happen in the future. I think what the president is doing is not helping one bit in terms of inflaming tensions between people and trying to pit us against one another. I mean, we can all agree that what we should all be able to agree that a black life matters. That shouldn't, it, that, that has gotten so politically polarized and so contentious is really sad to me. It's really depressing because um, people are, it, it, this is the Rorschach test era of politics. People are looking at the same term or the same idea and seeing two completely different versions of it. And uh, in reality, we're, we really are seeing the same thing, but it's gonna have to be those discussions that carry us forward. So I've offered, with the law enforcement community to have them out to town halls, ask difficult questions to them, have my constituents who are upset go and ask questions to them, have members of the activist community ask questions of them in a way that's not, you know, I don't want to inflame tensions. I don't want it to be in a, in a, in a, in a format like a riot or a, a looting scenario where you've got mobs of people who you don't know who just came in off the street staring each other down, looking intimidating. That's not the productive way, in my opinion, to get this in a uh, accountable public forum. I'd love to have a sit down discussion, a civil discussion, a polite discussion about how we can actually move this forward, what policies we can agree on, where the funding should come from, uh, how we can actually get something accomplished. And I wanna be that bridge between the both sides of, of this extremely contentious debate. So. Um, it sounds like I'm hedging a lot, I'm sure, and people will, people are free to criticize that I'm, uh, you know, not taking a stand or sounding too wishy-washy or whatever, but frankly, that's just what I believe in, and I'm going to stand up for my beliefs, and it's also what I believe the, mo the majority of this district uh, that I represent and that out of the thousands of conversations I've had with constituents that they believe as well. So I'm proud to be able to represent them, and I hope that we can actually have a substantive debate moving forward that isn't going to devolve into uh, name-calling or violence. Now, uh, you talked about uh, the endorsement of the FOP uh, in 2018. Mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. FOP, uh, police unions tend to always lean towards endorsing Republican candidates. What do you think that was the change from them endorsing the incumbent to, to uh, your campaign? out of curiosity. So this, so this has kind of boggled me as well. So they've never endorsed my opponent. I don't know why, I really don't. In 2000, he's, so he's run in 2012, 14, and 16, and every single time they endorse the challenger. But you're right, they do in our state, the Indiana FOP does endorse a majority of Republicans. So I was just like, did he do something to piss them off when he was on the town council? I'm, I'm just really not sure. So I, you know, I'm confident this year we'll earn their endorsement again because we're bringing common sense to the discussion. And I think he's probably had some beef with them in the past that is unsettled and that I don't know about. Mm. Um, but yeah, that's kind of how it shook out in our state. Mm. And also with uh, COVID-19 and your re-election campaign, uh, what has 
been the challenge or obviously there's been many challenges let's put it out there but uh, how have you been able to strategize your re-election campaign efforts into reaching out to constituents during the COVID-19 I mean door knocking is out of the question now and what levels of ways that you're engaging with your uh, constituents as as you're gearing up for a very difficult re-election campaign yeah so for us door knocking is not totally out of the question but we do it in a way where we don't have any physical contact with the person so what i'll do is i'll pop the literature into the door ring the doorbell take 20 steps back and i'll only talk to them from a distance masked up and then i won't ever hand them something hand to hand so there's no direct exchange there um, i think more people more candidates should be doing that quite honestly because um, our opponents out there doing it all the time he's doing it but he's doing it worse he's going up in people's faces and you know i've seen him walking around without a mask on and just not taking it not taking public health seriously but people have been extraordinarily appreciative of the approach that we're taking when we're going door to door one woman she just lost her brother to COVID um, recently in, in St. John in another part of my district and was super appreciative that we were not only at the door, but also distance and not handing anything directly off to her. So there's a way to do this that's safe and a good balance of making sure that we can get our message out there. Um, at the same time, if I do have volunteers who are concerned about their health, I let them just lit drop and put the flyer in the door and walk away. Don't even ring the doorbell. Um, that's totally fine. That's not something we did in 2018, but we're totally accepting of people's health conditions this year and very cognizant of how this can flare up, especially with flu season right around the corner. Um, so we've been strategic about it, but, and we've also, as you can imagine, been doing a lot of virtual stuff, phone banking, social media, uh, a lot of advertisements will be going up and, and trying to get the word out to voters that way as well. Mm. And uh, with your re-election campaign, uh, what is the challenge for you in this stage? This is your first time going into a re-election campaign and you're up against your same opponent and what do you think you're going to be prepared this time around with him? Uh, what are you looking to see him do this time around that he wasn't able to do last time? Because obviously you mentioned that he had not been engaging with districts, uh, with his district and not taking your campaign seriously at all. What do you think or what do you anticipate will happen uh, during this re-election campaign and how will you uh, counter that? Right. Well, it's already gotten way more negative. Um, it, there's going to be way more money behind him this year because my legislative race was the closest in the entire state since 2012. So it's a top, it's a top target district. It's a top jump ball that can go either way uh, for both parties. So we've already seen him kind of doing a whisper campaign and his pollster is saying nasty stuff about my parents, which I think is incredibly childish and is actually going to backfire on him. So I'm, I'm not getting too worked up about it, quite honestly, because I think it's just a, a stupid strategy that helps us when he tries to go after my parents. Uh, and second, my parents are I mean, my parents are medical doctors. It's not like they're strip club owners. So I don't know why, I don't know what he's trying to exactly say. What, did, with what is he saying about your parents, if you don't mind me asking? Yeah, so it, yeah it's, it's kind of an elitism argument, like saying that they live in this part of town in an expensive, like relatively to the rest of the district, like expensive uh, home. And, you know, and it's, it, it's just stuff like that that's trying to other us further from being members of this district. And it's like, well, dude, like a lot of your, a lot of our, our neighbors are the people donating to your campaign. Like just because we live in this part of town, 
why are you going after an entire base of your constituents, an entire subdivision that's absolutely idiotic, it's absolutely ridiculous. And it's something that it's, the only thing it's good at, I guess, was getting under my skin in the very beginning of the campaign. But we can already see shades of extremely ads that he will be running in, in the coming 60, 60 odd days. So that said, we're gonna be out there in force as well. I mean, we've got a, he's got a long legislative record of things that we have pulled from and done our research and seen that there are really horrible things that he's voted on outside of the things that I just mentioned at the beginning of the interview. So I just campaign based on facts alone. I'm not going after his business dealings or his family or his kids. I think that's childish. I'm not going after which part of town he lives in. I think that's stupid. Um, so he can go ahead and employ that strategy of extreme divisiveness, of scorched earth. I'm, we're already seeing that from the federal level, quite frankly, so nothing's new. But I'm optimistic that a campaign based on facts, based on real data, and based on frankness and my voting record is something that's going to carry us to another narrow victory in November, uh, it, uh, despite the fact that we're running on the same ballot as President Trump in a district that he won by 10 percentage points in 2016. So I let people make their own determination. Even when I go to the doors, I don't try to give them a sales pitch. And I think they really appreciate that. I say, look, here's, ma'am, here's my flyer. You can read everything about it. Have you got any questions for me about the election or any uh, positions that you want to question me about? If not, then have a nice day. I hope you can make your own determination. And people like that. I think people like the fact that we're frank about what I stand for and letting people make their own decisions instead of kind of talking down to them and saying, no, 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 you shouldn't believe that. You shouldn't have that view because of X, Y, and Z. And that's what I stand for. Instead, that's people despise that. And people think that's more political elitism that's talking down to them. So uh, it's going to be a lot nastier. I'm sure uh, in, in previous elections, they've actually bought out ads in the Chicago media market. So you actually might see some in the future, way over where you are in, in the Chicago area. Uh, but we're confident that we can have the chops to pull this off again. If reelected, what would be your goal? What would be your vision for your constituents? What would you like to continue on? Yeah, so some of the important work that we're doing around housing, especially, was something that I hadn't mentioned earlier in this interview, was that um, even though Indiana is kind of known as a more affordable, low-tax state, we have a three of the top 20 highest eviction filings uh, cities in the entire country. That blows my mind, and the fact that some renters and people who buy homes aren't able to afford homes on the low wages that they're paid in Indiana is something that's very concerning to me. So I'm looking for bipartisan ways we can expand housing affordability. Some of our other congressional delegation are working on similar initiatives uh, and also working with uh, uh, different stakeholders downstate, whether it's cities and towns or the builders or um, the affordable housing advocates to make sure that people can afford to stay in their homes. Because ultimately, these, the, the, all the social issues are very important. Don't catch me dismissing them. But really, the bread and butter stuff is what we've got to make more headway with because people are on the cusp of losing their homes. They can't pay their mortgages. They can't pay. Uh, they're going to get evicted from their apartments once the moratorium is lifted. And uh, blue-collar workers have been hit way harder in this pandemic in terms of the net amount of job losses. So it's on government to make sure that we can provide those housing options to people and get bureaucracy to stand out of the way when it comes to expanding those housing options. Um, we've got a lot of ideas up our sleeve, and uh, I could go into it more, but it would take a few hours. So that's kind of one <laughs> of the other initiatives that we're looking at. Yeah. And, you know, one of the qu uh, last questions I would want to ask you is, uh, 
what would you say to your 24-year-old self when you were contemplating unrunning for office? Well, I was glad that I did it. So just do it, man. I mean, I, I'd say that I say that to everybody I meet, quite honestly. Every young person who is content, who is asking me really in-depth, great questions about how uh, the the sausage is made in terms of legislation and how campaigning works, I encourage them, like you know, see who represents you. Like, go to this website. I have the link on my my campaign website, votechung.com. Uh, you can click your uh, the link type in your address, see who everybody represents you down from president to dog catcher. So all of that stuff is really important to uh, get yourself educated and get yourself working on a campaign, you know, spend an hour on a Saturday volunteering for somebody if you like them. Um, if you don't like them, then don't go volunteer for them. But if there are people that you believe in or people who you want to sway in terms of policy and you want to, you know, give them your expertise, whatever it may be, if you're a teacher, tell them about education issues then do that because we are, are, politicians are only as smart as the people that they represent. And if they listen, uh, that's ultimately the most important thing. And as a young Asian person, I mean, there is just not enough representation. There are only, I think we did a count and there are like 13 Korean American legislators out of the many thousands of state legislators in the entire United States. We just got a member of Congress, Andy Kim in New Jersey for the first time in 20 years in 2018. Uh, and there's just not enough representation at the at the state or national or local levels even and we've got to start flexing our muscle when it comes to getting involved in the community because we've been so overlooked and 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 i think we'll and i think we'd be good at this quite honestly asian americans have a really unique perspective coming from different countries and immigrating um, that don't fall in traditional buckets of right or left and we're able to have a more expanded empathetic view when it comes to a lot of these policy decisions uh, that are made so we've got so many things going for us that I think are, are really good. And I would encourage your listeners to uh, get in touch with me. My email is votechung at gmail.com. You can email me anytime if you just want to chat um, and we can talk about how we can uh, expand the political map for sure. And I want to say thank you so much for taking the time out of your busy schedule to do this interview. And, and, I, and also thank you for really sharing so much about Illinois House District 15. And also, uh, I, I want to tell everyone, I hope that you all get involved in civic engagement. I, this is a very critical time. We're in a census year. Uh, this is a very critical stage that we're at in terms of getting API communities involved and getting their issues out in the forefront. And I think since 2018, we're starting to see more API queer trans and BIPOC folks running and winning local, state, and even federal elections. So I want to wish you so much success in your re-election campaign. I know it's going to be a very uh, stressful one for you and your supporters, but uh, you know, keep up the great work that you're doing. And uh, I look forward to hearing more about your work in you know, the upcoming future. Thanks, Randy. Thanks for having me. Not a problem. Thank you. Well, that is all for today. Thank you for listening. And be on the lookout for future episodes. So follow me on The Bunby Chronicles on Facebook, or you can follow me on Instagram at bunby underscore chronicles. 
Thank you again and looking forward to sharing more with you.